This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Well, this morning we are looking at Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 50. Hear the word of God. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied, the man who told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. Let's pray. Father, we come to the Scriptures this morning and we give thanks to You for them, inspired by Your Holy Spirit and preserved by Him through the years, uh, translated, Lord, into English for us, our heart language, our mother tongue. We thank You for it. And I pray, Lord, that You will uh, open our eyes, open our ears, open our souls to receive the food that You have for us uh, from the Scriptures this morning. Father, we thank you that this is your word, and we pray that it would be accompanied by the power of your Holy Spirit, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Wouldn't it be great if God did some sign, if he gave some sign that would prove conclusively, incontrovertibly, once and for all, that the gospel is true? That would, that would remove any doubts we've ever had about anything the Bible teaches. 
that we could point our unbelieving friends to and say, look, see, I told you it was so. What would such a sign be? And would it really be as overwhelmingly effective as we might hope that it would be? Well, I don't know what kind of sign that would be. And it wouldn't be as effective. Because the very thing that you see God do that seems so convincing, so overwhelmingly true, your unbelieving friend might look at and say, hmm, that doesn't prove anything. And after all, think about it. Here you are, a believer in Christ, a follower of Christ, without some amazing, overwhelming sign. Why is that? Well, the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 1 provides us a clue when it speaks of all of the evidence that points to the Scriptures being the Word of God. Uh, its unity, the scope of it, and yet the coherence of it, all of these things, the beauty of it, the, the, the matter about which it speaks, all of these things point to the fact that it is the Word of God. But the confession wisely, and I think biblically, says, but ultimately, we are convinced of the truth of the Scriptures, we are convinced of the reality of the Gospel, not primarily because of all of the evidence that points to it, but because of the testimony of the Holy Spirit who testifies with and through the Word that it is, in fact, the Word of God. Jesus encounters a situation here as he's interacting with the scribes and Pharisees where they ask him for a sign. Now, if you've been with us, you know that in the context, Jesus is interacting with them on the basis of a miracle that he did and healing a man who was blind, a man who was mute, demon-possessed, and Jesus casts the demon out of him and heals his uh, muteness, heals his blindness. And they complain that Jesus is doing this by the power of the devil. And Jesus begins to explain the folly of that and to, as we saw last time, point to the need uh, for the tree to be made good so that it would produce good fruit. A bad tree simply cannot produce bad fruit. A good tree won't produce, uh, won't produce bad fruit. And so some of the scribes and Pharisees say to him, Teacher, Rabbi, we wish to see a sign. Now they're very polite, showing at least some measure of respect. They, they give him the courtesy of the title, Teacher. We wish to see a sign from you. Now, if you've been paying attention to the Gospel of Matthew up to this point, you're thinking, why? What, what has he not done that is, isn't a sign already? You know, he's, he's made lame people walk, and he's made blind people see, and he's made dead people live. And, and they say, we want to see a sign from you. Well, it could be they had something very specific in mind, uh, because there were other people, as Jesus himself pointed to just a few paragraphs earlier, Others who went around doing these kinds of miracles. What they wanted was something from heaven. What they wanted was something so overwhelmingly, incontrovertibly obvious that it would leave no room for doubt and no need for faith. And Jesus declines to give them such a sign. Look at what he says. 
He answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Now, as we go through this passage, Jesus is pointing to three realities here that we need to be aware of in the whole spiritual realm. And the first one is this, just the, the sheer blindness of unbelief. Blindness of unbelief. And Jesus says, he calls them an evil and adulterous generation. Evil because they seek their own ways. Evil because they are guilty of all kinds of injustice and all kinds of immorality. Adulterous because they were spiritually unfaithful. Even while in the case of scribes and Pharisees, they had this veneer of godliness. Yet they really were a a spiritually adulterous, unfaithful people. And they were not alone. That was characteristic of many of that generation, as Jesus names them. And it seeks for a sign. But Jesus says no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Say, we want to see a sign. We want something so manifestly obvious it cannot be denied. Something like Jesus throwing himself from the pinnacle of the temple and landing at the bottom unharmed. Well, Jesus says, I'm not going to give you a sign. Now, if you know the scriptures, you know in the Old Testament, particularly God gave signs to people. We think of Gideon, you know, if he just had the fleece dry and the ground wet, and then later the, the fleece wet and the ground dry. And, and God graciously gave signs to bolster the weak faith of his people. But Jesus, one, was not about to produce magic acts on demand, and two, was not going to gratify the skeptical hearts of these people who were asking for a sign. He's not going to throw them a sop to their unbelief, to their skepticism. He does say, however, that there's an exception. No sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, the way that's worded indicates that Jonah himself was the sign, the sign that is Jonah. Well, what is it about Jonah? We've got the book of Jonah, and there are four chapters there. We read one of them earlier. Uh, Well, Jesus specifies exactly what it is about Jonah that would be the sign. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, we think immediately, resurrection, right? Well, remember, it hasn't happened yet from the point of view of those who were hearing Jesus. So it was a little bit of an ambiguous thing to say. They didn't have the hindsight that we have. Well, he said, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish, three days, three nights, the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth, three days, three nights. Now, that's an expression that basically means over a period of three days. And so, wait a minute, let's see, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Well, by Jewish reckoning, any part of the day counted as a day. It was three days inclusive. He went into the grave Friday, was in the grave Saturday, came out of the grave Sunday, three days. And that's what Jesus was pointing to here that just as Jonah's experience of basically suffering, metaphorically anyway, and almost literally, a death in the belly of this fish, and yet coming out alive after being in the depths of the sea, Jesus says, then so the Son of Man will be uh, three days, three nights. By the way, if you accept the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus, you pretty much have to accept the historicity of what happened to Jonah. Jesus did. Jesus points to that as something that indicates the nature of the sign that he will give, that he himself experienced. And yes, of course, he's pointing to his resurrection. That would be the only sign their skepticism and unbelief would get is a risen Savior. And of course, even that was a sign that in their unbelief they could deny. 
Well, his disciples came and stole his body away. So even when confronted with that sign of all signs, they weren't convinced. Remember in in Luke chapter 16, Jesus told the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And um, here, here they were, they lived their lives, the rich man in his life of comfort, Lazarus in his life of suffering, and then they die and they go. Uh, as Jesus tells the parable in Luke 16, and uh, the the poor man goes and is in the uh, the bosom of Abraham, goes to be with Abraham, and uh, the rich man is in the fires of Hades, and he's in he's being tormented, and he looks up and he sees Lazarus with Abraham, and he says, "Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish." In this flame, and Abraham speaks to him and says, "No, you know this is chasm fix. There's nothing we can do for you. Your place is is permanently assigned you, and there is no relief for you." Well, then the rich man interestingly shows some measure of compassion toward his own brothers, toward the members of his household. Verse twenty-seven. Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. If he can't bridge this divide between us and come into hell to relieve my misery, at least send him to my father's house, to my brothers, to my family, that he may warn them. They also come into this, that they might also come into this place of torment. And Abraham said, "They have Moses and the prophets." Let them hear them. They have the testimony of the Scriptures. They have the Word of God. Let them listen to the testimony of the Word of God. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. If they see that overwhelming, amazing, miraculous sign of someone coming back from the dead, if they see it with their own eyes, they'll believe. How does Abraham answer? Verse 31, he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And they weren't. And many today are not, even though there's amazing evidence and demonstration of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. They asked for a sign, but you see, what they needed was not more light. What they needed was more sight. They were blind. And even when one came back from the dead, it wouldn't convince them. Well, Jesus goes on to explain that the blindness of their unbelief. Look at 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. You remember what happened. Jonah was delivered from the sea by the whale, and God does, you know, he says, okay, now once again I repeat to you, go to Nineveh, and preach to the people of Nineveh. And this time Jonah went, albeit reluctantly, and in spite of, his, in spite of himself, the people actually repented, you know, put on sackcloth, rough, rough burlap-like garments, sat in dust and, a- dust and ashes as a, as a way of expressing their, their repentance. And Jesus said that those people of Nineveh are going to rise up against you because they repented when Jonah preached. But something greater then Jonah is here. Now, we would expect them to say someone greater, but in the Greek, it's, it's neuter in gender, grammatically, and it says something greater, which, of course, includes Jesus, but it includes the whole coming of the kingdom with Jesus. There's something much bigger than just Jonah going and preaching. It's here among you, and yet you will not respond, and yet you will not repent to the preaching of Jesus himself. 
If those people repented at the preaching of Jonah, someone much greater than Jonah and something much bigger than Jonah is here, and you will not repent, those Ninevites will rise up in condemnation against you. Because in your blindness, you would not repent. Verse 42, another example, the queen of the south, queen of Sheba, who we read about in the Old Testament, uh, traveled a long distance because she had heard of Solomon and, and comes to him and has time to spend with him and listen to him, listen to his teaching, listen to his wisdom, converse with him, interact with him. And as wonderful and amazing as the things were she had heard about Solomon, when the queen of Sheba left, she said, Behold, the half had not been told me. She was, she was impressed. She was overwhelmed when she experienced the reality. You know how sometimes you hear something, there's a lot of hype. Oh, it was a great movie, best movie you'll ever see. Or it was a great show, best show you'll ever see. And you go and you go, it's okay. Maybe your expectation was raised too high. Well, that was not the case with the Queen of Sheba when she heard Solomon. She, she said, it was, it was greater than I was told. But the point is, she traveled a long distance to go and hear Solomon. And yet she too will rise up, Jesus says, in the judgment with this generation and she will condemn it because she came and she heard and listened to and received the wisdom of Solomon. But something greater than Solomon is here. Greater wisdom than Solomon ever possessed. Stood in their midst, preached to them, taught them, conversed with them. They wouldn't receive it. So the Queen of Sheba, the Queen of the South, will rise up in condemnation against them. They had light, and they responded to it. The generation that Jesus was with had even the greater light of Christ himself, and yet they were blind to it and didn't respond. Why is it? Because it's the blindness of unbelief. And that's true today. Yes, we want to engage in apologetics, giving a rational defense for uh, our faith, an explanation of our faith. We want to use every avenue of logic and reason to talk about the, faith, the fact that while we do exercise faith, it's not a blind or irrational faith. But, you know, we can be as logically convincing. We can have the greatest evidence to support our positions. And people who are spiritually blind will remain in their unbelief unless God first comes and gives them not only light, gives them sight to see and receive that light. And you see, those are the people that Jesus was dealing with here. And sometimes people, sometimes we think, and and people would say, you know, if I just saw Jesus, saw the miracles he did, I would believe. Not apart from the grace of God in your heart, you wouldn't. There were plenty of people who saw Jesus and heard Jesus and witnessed the miracles that he did, and they killed him. You see, we see here the staggering blindness of unbelief, the sheer hardness of the human heart in its sin, and the desperate need we have for God's grace to come to us and to make our hearts alive to believe the gospel, but also to come to our family, to come to our loved ones, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers. And that's why while we witness to people, we also need to be praying for people, that God would use the truth that we share be the instrument, along with the Holy Spirit, by which he gives them the sight that they need to see the powerful evidence God has given. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Well, Jesus wasn't going to do that, because that wasn't their problem. It was not more evidence they needed. It was a new heart. Well, that brings us then to the second reality Jesus speaks about here, and that is the myth of neutrality. 
Look at verses 43 and following. Now, Jesus sort of refers back to the whole situation where he cast out an evil spirit. And he goes on kind of following up on that, that, that action. He says, now, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places or dry or arid places seeking rest but finds none. Now, I don't pretend to be privy to the spiritual world to the degree that Jesus was. I don't know what demons cast out seek, what they like, what they want. Um, Jesus says they pass through dry places, desert-like places, literal places on earth, uh, metaphorically, I don't know. But they're seeking rest. But that's not the point. Ultimately, the point is then. The demon says, I'll return to the house from which I came, this person from which it was cast out. And when it comes back, it, 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 it finds it empty, swept, put in order. And Jesus is likening the person to a house here. Now, all of you have, have, have gone house hunting or apartment hunting. When you're looking for a place to live and you see a house and it, it's the, the previous occupants perhaps have moved out. And it's empty, and it's clean, and everything's in order. Or maybe they haven't, and everything's amazingly orderly and clean because they were busy frantically an hour before you got there getting the place cleaned up, right? You think, why can't my house look like this? Well, theirs didn't either until they went into to high speed. But the point is, Jesus is saying that the occupant, the demon, has been cast out, and here it is, empty, swept, put in order, ready to receive the new occupants. And this demon returns, and he comes back, this unclean spirit comes back, Jesus says, with seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the person is worse off than he was before. Now, what's Jesus talking about here? Well, you see, the the question of the scribes and Pharisees was basically that of, of disinterested bystanders. Now, you know the difference between uninterested and disinterested. They, they were not uninterested, but they posed themselves as disinterested. Uninterested means I have no interest in it. I'm not, I, couldn't, I, I, could care, I could not care less, or could care less. People say both. I could not care less makes more sense logically. Well, they were not disinterested, however, uh, in the sense of being partial, uh, neutral. Is what disinterested means. They have no interest in the outcome one way or the other. Well, they, they presented themselves that way. Well, Jesus, we set ourselves an evaluation upon you, and if you'll just show us a sign, then we will render judgment on whether you are who you say you are. They set themselves up as disinterested, partial, impartial, neutral judges. And what Jesus is saying here is you cannot be neutral. You see... You've heard the saying, nature abhors a vacuum. Where there's an emptiness, something wants to fill it. Well, that's true in the spiritual realm, too. A person cannot be neutral because something is going to come and fill that effort at neutrality. By the way, that's the myth of secularism. Secular Great Britain is being filled with a new religion. Once Christian, now secular Great Britain is rapidly becoming an Islamic nation. London, Londonistan, I think, the, is the, uh, the uh, informal term for the capital of uh, the, the Great Britain. It's rapidly becoming a Muslim nation. Churches are closed. They're becoming restaurants and businesses, but they're also becoming mosques. Why is that? Because as Great Britain and other nations, European nations particularly, 
have tried to set themselves up as impartial, neutral, secular, non-religious nations, there's a vacuum, and Islam is filling that vacuum. Kind of a frightening and and unsettling thought, but it's true. You cannot be neutral spiritually, and you cannot be neutral where Christ is concerned. Efforts at neutrality result in opposition, as these were opposed to Christ. They weren't neutral. They could pretend to be, but they weren't. And so Jesus says, so also will it be with this evil generation. You see, Jesus has come. Jesus has demonstrated the grace of God, shown the power of the kingdom of God, and in some ways created an emptiness. But without any commitment to Christ, it's being filled up with evil, and they're in an even worse condition than they were before. Now, not every person, obviously, was in that case. There were many who believed in Jesus, many who followed Jesus. But there were many who were also like these leaders, who were typical of so many in that unbelieving generation, who had the light in their midst and rejected it. So Jesus exposes here that myth of neutrality. There are a lot of people that way today. Well, just, you know, show me the facts and I'll make up my own mind. You can't be neutral where Jesus is concerned. If you're not for him, you're against him. If you're not with him in the kingdom, you're outside the kingdom. It's not up to us to render judgment on who Jesus is. We receive Jesus on his own terms. And that brings us to the third reality of which Jesus speaks here. First, the the startling blindness of unbelief. Uh, Second, the, the myth of neutrality where Jesus and his kingdom is concerned. But then also third, as Jesus says here, the necessity of faith. Now, while Jesus is there talking, someone comes to Jesus. And there's a verse uh, 47, the ESV does not include it, some translations do, that have the messenger coming and saying, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are at the door and they wish to speak to you. Well, it doesn't change the meaning. Uh, Verse 48, Jesus replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Now, Jesus does not mean to be uncharitable toward his own family. That's not the point here. He's making another point uh, because the messenger seems to be pressing the priority of blood relationship. You're talking to the people. There's an important conversation going on. But Jesus, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are here. You know, the implication being you need to stop everything and go talk to them. And Jesus says, who, are, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Now, that could be offensive in that context in which family relationships were valued so highly. But Jesus wasn't meaning to, to put down that relationship, but to teach a higher relationship. Now, we've read in Mark and John that uh, Jesus' family were not believers. In fact, in Mark 3, we read how they came to get him. They said he's out of his mind. Yeah. John 7 tells us his brothers at that point did not believe in him. So while they were blood and flesh relationship, they apparently were not spiritual relationship to Jesus. And Jesus can say, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? He takes this opportunity. And in verse 49, stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mothers and my brothers. Jesus is saying that this spiritual relationship is a very real family relationship That is at least equal to, and I think Jesus is saying, even transcends blood relationship. The Christian is part of a family, the family of God. And those relationships are at least as important as blood relationships and may even transcend them. And then he explains in verse 50, Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. 
wait a minute, well, that sounds kind of like works, you know, legal righteousness. So we have to work our way into the family of God. Well, I think John 6 helps to explain that when some people come to Jesus and they say to Jesus, well, what do we need to do to do the works God requires? You know, it reminds me of uh, students in a class, you know, we always with a test coming up. Well, teacher, what's going to be on the test? What do we need to know for the test? What's, what's the minimum? What's required, right? Lest we study too much. Lest we fill our heads with knowledge we don't really need because we won't be tested on it. Well, they basically said, well, you know, they have the whole Old Testament. Well, Jesus, what do we need to do to do the works God requires? What does he really want from us? Well, this is what Jesus says. He said, the work of God is this, to believe in the one whom he has sent. And so when Jesus says here, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, yes, that would involve obedience to the commands, but first and foremost, it involves faith. It involves belief in the Lord Jesus. And everything else, in terms of our discipleship, in terms of our obedience, flows from that relationship with God through faith in Christ. Now, the amazing thing is that when we hear the witness of the Scriptures... Christ and believe in him, then all of the other evidence, all of the other miracles, all of these signs, the resurrection of Christ, the sign par excellence, becomes very much convincing. We see the reality of it. We see the power of it. That's why Anselm said so long ago, nor do I seek to understand that I may believe, but I believe that I may understand you see, when we receive the gospel witness, admittedly by the grace of God only, and believe in Christ, then we understand. Then it all becomes clear. Then the witness of Scripture becomes that much more powerful. But it has to be by the work of the Holy Spirit. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, it's not just that Christianity makes sense. It's that everything else makes sense when seen through the light of Christianity. And so we do believe in Christ, and then we find that we understand, we see, we perceive in a way that we never did before. Then we recognize that signs abound, pointing to Jesus as the Savior, as the Son of God. You see, the, the, the evidence can help encourage, can help uh, convict, can help to, uh, to shine light. But one thing the evidence can never do, one thing the miracles, the signs, even the resurrection of Christ can never do, is change a human heart. Only the power of God by the Holy Spirit can do that. But when we believe in Christ, then we see that all the rest makes sense. We need to be careful that we don't have a skeptical, unbelieving heart that says, Jesus, just show me a sign and I'll believe. We need to receive the witness of the Scriptures to Christ, that He was the Savior, that He came to save sinners, that we are the sinners who need Him, and that we repent of our sin and believe in Him. And then we will see all the truth we could ever imagine. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the Scriptures. Thank You that they do so faithfully point to Christ. And Lord, I pray that You will open our eyes to see him for who he is and to believe in him. Father, we do believe in Jesus in order that we might understand. Father, I do pray for anyone here who is not a believer that you would open the eyes, open the heart to receive the truth of the gospel that is so manifest. Remove the blindness of unbelief. Take away, Father, any 
delusion, of the myth of neutrality. But Father, give us faith. Give us the eyes to see. Give us the ears to hear. And follow Jesus and be saved. We pray in his name. Amen.